Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, I just want to say thank you for listening, but now I need you to share the message, share the Lincoln Project podcast. If you haven't already, rate it five stars, share with your friends, your family, anyone who you think might be interested. As always, all I could say is thank you, keep on listening, and now on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Pulitzer Prize winning and New York Times bestselling author, Stacey Schiff. She's written an impressive catalog of books, including award-winning biographies on Benjamin Franklin, Cleopatra, and now her latest book, The Revolutionary, Samuel Adams. The Revolutionary was named one of the Wall Street Journal's 10 best books of 2022, and was also featured on President Barack Obama's list of best books for last year. It's available wherever fine books are sold. In addition to her books, Stacy's written for numerous publications, including The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and The LA Times. She's coming to us from north of New York City today. Stacy, welcome. Thanks, Reed. I'm delighted to join you. Okay, so I'm going to start on page one. He was a perfect failure until middle age. Samuel Adams, who you note, has only come down to us as a firebrand revolutionary and a popular beer, was a failure until middle age. This is a guy who went to Harvard, who had opportunities, but somehow until the middle of his life couldn't figure it out. So I don't know why, but I find that immensely appealing. Something about the late blooming part of the personality I just <laughs> <laughs> jumps off the page at me. Some of us are still waiting to I bloom, know, Stacey, I, so I'm sure I get there's it. a piece of that for me as well. <laughs> but it's also that this is a man who has not only one Harvard degree, but two Harvard degrees. He has the best education colonial America has to offer. And he just can't find his place. And he really kind of just wafts around Boston, sort of trying things and failing at things throughout his early career, and is living primarily on ideas. And only when those ideas begin to engage with the political situation does he find traction himself. But yes, he begins, he opens a shop, fails at the shopkeeping. He goes to work in an accounting firm, fails at the accounting firm. He inherits a piece of a fortune. He squanders it. It's really a study in multiple failures, his early years. Right. And as someone who went to high school and college in Texas, Stacy, one thing I always found about the Texan mindset, not unlike Samuel Adams, was the sin was not failing because so many people in Texas, especially in the, let's say, the oil and gas business had great success and great failure. The sin was not trying again. The sin was giving up. Well, the sin in colonial Boston would have been just being without an occupation because this was a very high achieving, very industrious, aspirational town. There was not a huge amount of social mobility, but there was social mobility and everyone was occupied. So it becomes almost a point of consternation to Adams's enemies, ultimately, that he has never had an occupation, that they can't really explain who this man is because they can't write him off as a brewer of beer or a worker at the docks or a merchant. They just don't have a predicate nominative to attach to his name. And so 
let's talk about his name because obviously his cousin, John Adams, probably more famous now, certainly, first vice president, second president, you know, HBO series, very well thought of biography of him. Why has it taken Samuel Adams so long and even to this moment to get his due as someone who, in the course of your book, you know, even says he's willing to do the thinking and let others take the credit. But why do you think it's taken so long for him to get the renown that he deserves as someone who really was such a driving force at the beginning of the Republic? There are a couple of reasons, all of them very good. But let me just go back a half a step, because to put it in perspective, in their day, Samuel Adams was the better known Adams. And in fact, is older than John. He's the more rarefied of the two of them. He's the urban cousin who actually recruits John Adams to the opposition cause. And so much more prominent than is John that when John Adams goes to France to help Ben Franklin out at the court of Versailles, he will have to explain to people that he's not the famous Mr. Adams. They think he's Samuel. <laughs> and he'll have to say, no, I'm another Mr. Adams. And of course, nobody right. believes him, right? They just think he's being modest, which of course, John Adams could not possibly be. So at the time, there is a complete reversal you know, of the more famous and less famous. Adams, in a way, is complicit in his own disappearance. He's a very diffident man. John, at the end of the revolution, says to him, you need to collect your writings. They will explain what has happened better than any other set of documents. And Samuel never does that. He never does any kind of compendium. He never writes any kind of autobiography. Whereas John, as we know, is extremely good at claiming the spotlight and is writing for posterity from the get-go, really. But it's also a question of what you do after a revolution. You don't really want the revolutionaries still walking around or, you know, they're troublesome. You want for a very stable government to take over. You don't want any sense of the disorder of the previous years. And I think with our revolution in particular, we wanted to whitewash all of the sort of early street theater and all the unrest and make it seem more as if it was a high-minded Jeffersonian production. This was a high-minded set of ideals that established what was established in 1776. It was not all of that kind of urban guerrilla warfare that Sam Adams was so complicit in in Boston. Right. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That's so much better than, you know, a bunch of Bostonians destroying the house of a royal governor, right? <laughs> that is the one thing is that in the course of this book, Samuel Adams is the main character, but you mentioned Thomas Hutchinson, who's the governor of the colony of Massachusetts, but also the city of Boston is a character in this book. And maybe Adams and the city of Boston and Hutchinson are intertwined. But let's start with the city of Boston. So you mentioned that it was a very prosperous, it was a city on the move. Tell us a little bit more about Boston of that time and how it could become a breeding ground for someone like Adams to finally meet his moment. I'm so glad you think of it as a character because so did I. And part of that, I'm sure, was having spent too many years reading Boston newspapers of the 1760s and 1770s. So I can tell you, you know, what a pineapple cost in Boston on any given day. But it is a surprisingly sophisticated town. Most foreigners who land there, most people coming from London will be surprised at how beautiful and how clean and elegant Boston is. But at the same time, it's a town which has had some economic setbacks, which obviously have a good deal to do with what's going to happen over the next years. So it's a town that's a little bit down on its luck. The shipping industries have begun to decamp to New York and to Philadelphia. It's feeling very much the weight of having to support itself. Taxation has felt crushing for some of the years that precede Adams's most active ones. And it is also a town which, and this plays an enormous role as well, has a very high literacy rate and has, during most of this period, five to six newspapers. 
And it is a town that is mad for the news, which also has something to do, obviously, with how ideas can catch fire, as does the fact that Massachusetts has a more independent government than does most of the other colonies. So you have a town where there is a history of a bit of civil disobedience. There's a sort of history of the people being obstreperous, that Bostonians are known to be very eloquent and also very stubborn. And you have this press, which is able to disseminate ideas. And you have a town that's down on its heels. And this was obviously all of it, um, very fertile territory. So, Stacy, in a town of less than 20,000 people, they can support six newspapers. And as you said, they're mad for the news. I mean, they sound a little bit like modern Americans. I think that if you look at the press during these years, and particularly what Adams is able to do with the press, you begin to see that social media is not an entirely new concept. I mean, the, the way newspapers are shared from person to person, the way stories are picked up. Adams really is the father of sort of the first modern news syndicate. He sends stories from Boston south to New York and then from there south to Philadelphia. And then those stories come back to New York, obviously in somewhat misshapen form. But that cross-pollination is something which we know better from social media networks. And he was trying to institute with the first newspapers in America. And so he is the progenitor of the committees of correspondence, which would be not only the way that sort of the philosophy of the revolution would make its way around the country, if that's an accurate representation. But was he also sending the news south? Was that part of the deal? That's part of the deal. And you know, the committees of correspondence, I think, have suffered for their incredibly dreary name. From a very early point, Adams is trying every method he can think of to get all the colonies lined up on the same page. And this begins even with a much earlier letter, which was a protest to the king, which became known as the circular letter, which he sends south to the other colonies. And he's very much trying to get everyone to sort of speak of their indignation in the same terms. But the committees, which he will finally manage to found in 1772, were essentially these just little almost cells which were meant to talk about assaults on American liberty and to re-articulate the ideas which Americans held dear. And those committees were meant to correspond with each other from town to town, from province to province, ultimately from colony to colony, so that by the time the First Continental Congress takes place, the colonies already have a, not just a common vocabulary, but a common grammar. And yes, he stands almost single-handedly behind that movement, which at first is a movement at which crown officers scoff. They think this is a ridiculous idea. You know, why would anybody bother with this? And very quickly, they see that towns are jumping on this bandwagon and colonies are beginning to correspond. And they realize the danger in that. I mean, in Thomas Hutchinson's words, if, if you could just keep the colonies enough apart, they would begin to fight with each other and there would be no problem for the crown. And of course, Stacey, there's the famous Ben Franklin quote that comes to mind. We must hang together or surely we shall hang separately. But let me ask you this, because, you know, I just finished reading Hannah Arendt's On Revolution, and she does a study and a comparison of the French Revolution and the American Revolution. And one of the things that she posits, Stacey, is that the reason why the American Revolution was birthed the way it was, such as it is from a governmental perspective, was that the colonies were already so used to governing themselves in many ways, that the people were used to town hall meetings, were used to having their own House of Burgesses or House of Delegates. So talk to us a little bit about even before the Stamp Act and the colonists really decide they don't want to be part of the empire anymore, 
Talk to us a little bit about how Americans govern themselves. That's exactly the point. There is this utter disregard for the colonies from London's point of view until 1764 and 1765 with the Sugar and Stamp Acts. And during those earlier years, it made sense to defend the colonies and obviously to spend a great deal of money defending the colonies. But otherwise, very little attention was paid to them in London. And that had two effects. One of them was to make London very tone deaf in terms of what was happening on the other side of the ocean, also largely ignorant of even what existed on the other side of the ocean. So you see hilarious dispatches in which people can't really even locate the American colonies. It was New York and Philadelphia. Were they in the East Indies or the West Indies? There really is this just thoroughgoing misunderstanding. And for that matter, for a long time, there's a real buy-in on this idea that if you could just get rid of Samuel Adams and maybe one or two other people, there wouldn't even be any kind of rebellion in America, that this is just a couple of bad eggs who have this issue on hand. But from the other point of view, what you have is in particularly the Massachusetts Bay Colony, a group of people who are used to governing themselves. The Massachusetts Charter is a very, as I said, one of the most independent ones. And it's one that doesn't even mention parliament. There's no codification really of the relationship between the Crown and the Massachusetts Bay Colony. So that a lot of the issues during these years, a lot of these issues are not just about taxation, but are about the fundamental question of who is in charge of the colonial destiny is it the colonies themselves or is it Great Britain? Because for a very long time, it had seemed, especially from the New England perspective, as if the colonies were themselves in charge. Yeah, because if your supposed masters, for lack of a better way to put it, literally can't locate you on a map, can they really control you? And you know, it's funny because there's a condescension on the part of Great Britain, which I don't think we always notice, which the colonists are very aware of and they take badly, obviously, and they know they're being treated as if they are, as they put it, half primitives like the Scots, you know, like a people who are basically second rate citizens, and they really don't appreciate it. And that is also part of this picture, as is this disaffection for and impatience with the New England elite, which is to say the people who think of themselves as kind of Anglo-Americans and seem to have their hands on all the levers of power, so that there's a lot of personal animus toward people like Thomas Hutchinson and his friends, which also plays a role in that whole relationship between colonies and mother country. Let's take a second. Just I want to get back to Adams, but I want to get the supporting cast in place first. So let's talk about Thomas Hutchinson. So he is the governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And, you know, he suffers the literal slings and arrows, sometimes, Stacy, of Bostonians. He sees Adams and his, quote, and his breed, right, as a junto of patriotic grandees. So take us a little bit into the rise and fall of Thomas Hutchison, because he, again, is the foil to Samuel Adams in so much of this. And I should add a, a thoroughly decent and hardworking public official. He's a little bit older than Adams. They have very similar backgrounds. Hutchinson is from a wealthier family and has begun to add to his own personal fortune as early as his Harvard years. But they're both of them fifth generation sons of Massachusetts. Hutchinson, from a very early age, joins the Massachusetts House of Representatives. And after that, begins to amass pretty much all the titles you could amass in government. So for most of these years, he is either lieutenant governor or acting governor or governor. And it is that collection of titles and that agglomeration of power that so upsets people, men like Samuel Adams. But Hutchinson is a very devoted crown servant. He totally misunderstands and minimizes the situation. 
He doesn't really understand. I mean, there's a real cluelessness here. He doesn't really understand that the ideas that are floating around are going to actually land. He doesn't understand why the world doesn't just essentially return to its former shape. And it's kind of a case study in how an elite can really lose a sense of the world around them in the course of 14 short years. I can't imagine anything like that happening in our time. No, nor can I. No modern parallels to that. (laughs) No, none whatsoever. Especially, you know, time of radical upheaval, you know, explosion of media. No parallels there. No. Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Talk to us a little bit about the arrogance with which Hutchinson and his cohort carry themselves. Do they just believe that Adams is a rabble rouser? Do they see the Bostonians and the Americans more generally as troublemakers, as ingrates, right? Adams and I guess, you know, so many of the colonists want to be seen as Englishmen. The English don't see them that way. It doesn't sound like Hutchinson, maybe he sees himself that way, but maybe doesn't see his constituents. Maybe he doesn't even see them as constituents. I think the mistake that he makes and that many of his colleagues make and many people who are reading his dispatches in London make is that they see Adams as a desperado, as a man with nothing to lose, who is a rabble rouser because he has no fortune and there's really no reason not to upset the apple car. What they're very slow to realize is that this is actually a man of ideals and that those ideals are going to gain traction. So they are writing him off as something that is completely separate from what he actually is. And yes, Adams has organized what essentially becomes the body of the people, which is to say this, you know, it's like a town meeting taking over the established government. And Hutchinson can't deride that body of people enough. It's always, you know, these assemblies of Tom Dixon Harry's, you know, this these people who have the appearance of men. He's just he's immensely scornful of what's happening and doesn't recognize that it's actually gathering force under his watch. So as you noted, and I think this is an important point to emphasize, is that you say that Hutchinson has acquired every title one can acquire and has acquired incredible wealth. And, and as I noted just briefly earlier, that wealth represented by a beautiful home, which was ultimately ransacked. And he can't figure out Adams because Adams, like, if Adams wanted to make his money and he wanted to do well in the Massachusetts Bay colony, he would have found a way into some sort of political power or, as you said, lieutenant governor, maybe the customs officer, whatever it is. But for a guy like him who's so staid and so stuffy and such, as you said, a creature of the British administration, the idea that somebody would do it for some, maybe Adam certainly had his own reasons, but selfless can't probably just compute with a guy like Hutchinson. Right. I think you can't see beyond the jealousy factor. You just assume that this is being done because someone so much wants to be you, right? As it comes down to that problem of not everybody wants to be Thomas Hutchinson. But if you, I mean, if you want the whole thing in miniature, the best expression of it, I think, is when, and I'm jumping ahead for one second, when the East India Company ships tea to America and appoints six people in Boston to be the sole uh, merchants who can sell that tea, 
Two of them are Thomas Hutchinson's relatives. Two of them are Thomas Hutchinson's friends. And two of them are Thomas Hutchinson's sons. And it was precisely that aristocratic stranglehold that Adams finds so objectionable and that Thomas Hutchinson, for his part, really can't see past. Yeah, because I am governor or lieutenant governor, and I have the right to do this. And I don't understand, one, why you think you can tell me what is right and wrong. And second, why you would think that this was wrong. This is how things are done. And has been done since time immemorial. So insofar as there was time immemorial in America. Exactly. Can I skip across the pond for a second? So tell me in the context of this period, the 1760s, do you consider Britain, is it a democracy at this point? Because the king still comes into play an awful lot. Parliament and the prime minister are still noted a lot, but would you, I mean, and I know it's different in the context of how we think about democracy, but is it a constitutional monarchy at this point? Is the king in charge? Is parliament in charge? Parliament is largely in charge. I mean, it does not compare to what we would call a democracy today, certainly, where it differs from the colonies. And obviously what creates the issue with the colonies is the question of representation. And, you know, early on, that is something that will divide Adams from some of his closest associates, because the question is, if the colonies were represented in parliament, would that be acceptable? Does that constitute a representational government if you do have some kind of ministers in London who represent colonial interests? And that's where someone like Adams parted ways with someone like James Otis, who believed that was possible. And Adams thought it was just unworkable because the distance was too great. All right. So let's turn to some of the... uh tenderbox issues that gets Adams really riled up. And before we do that, I want to go back to the beginning of the book, because I think this also has parallels today, which you say, quote, Adams saw no reason why high-minded ideals should shy away from underhanded tactics. So tell us, what was the first thing that really got Samuel Adams off his duff and said, I'm going to be a revolutionary? (laughs) I'm not sure it's an overnight conversion, just for the record. The thing that really sets him in motion is the Stamp Act. And he is not yet a member of the Massachusetts House of Representatives when the House will recruit him to write their official response to London about their objections to the Stamp Act. So already he has established himself. He's established the fact that he has a very fluent pen and that these ideas, that the resistance to this kind of British legislation is something that he's very comfortable talking about. So that assignment is given to him, even though he's not a member of the House. And then shortly thereafter, he will be elected to the House, probably as a sort of thank you for having written that response. So really, it's the Stamp Act that sets him in motion. He's not you know, in the streets destroying homes of Crown officers, Thomas Hutchinson's included, but he is very much on the barricades at that moment saying we can't live with legislation that is imposed on us by an arbitrary authority. And so the Stamp Act for us, just to remind us of our fifth grade history, was basically any piece of paper that was going to be used from newspapers to playing cards to deeds had to have this stamp affixed to it. And if it did not have that stamp affixed to it, then it wasn't legal. It wasn't usable. That's exactly right. And couldn't be sold. And for that reason, a paper could not be published without it. A deed could not be produced without it. And as has been pointed out, it was a particularly ill-conceived piece of legislation because the two demographics it was most likely to offend were lawyers and printers. So a bad idea to begin. But also a tax that, as John Adams will say, creates more unanimity. I mean, there's probably been no idea in American history about which there has been such perfect unanimity as that the Stamp Act was a you know, thoroughgoing, 
awful imposition on the crown's part on the American colonies. So is this the beginning of the no taxation without representation mantra? It really is. It really is. And so the Stamp Act, is the Stamp Act the one where at least Bostonians begin to boycott the use of paper? Is that what happens? There's every possible pushback with the Stamp Act because there's such unanimity about it in the colonies. Very quickly, word becomes to come back from London that, you know, maybe London isn't going to stand by it and maybe repeal is in the offing. So in a funny way, it tempers to some extent the reaction, certainly after Thomas Hutchinson's house is destroyed and riots because of the Stamp Act. The reaction is somewhat tempered because word has come that a repeal is on the way. So the Stamp Act is actually law for a very brief period of time, and it's never enforced. So essentially, repeal is accompanied by the Declaratory Act, which is in a funny way more important because this is an act which essentially reminds the colonists that parliament has a right to legislate in all affairs whatsoever. And the colonies at this point are so happy to hear that the Stamp Act has been repealed and are so interested in throwing celebrations because of repeal that they really don't want to hear about this other act. People like Adams find it really sticks in the craw. And this is, and he's aware of the fact that there is this larger problem out there that, again, this question of, you know, how do the colonies in the mother country relate to each other, that this is going to come back to haunt them at some point. But you can see that that's a little farther down the road. And one of the interesting things about Adams as a revolutionary is how good he is at biding his time, how prudent he is. And so he realizes that in the immediate aftermath of the Stamp Act is not the time to begin to raise a fuss about the Declaratory Act. That can wait. There's a favorite expression of mine, Stacey, which is, if you have to say it out loud, it's probably not true. And that would seem to me to be the Declaratory Acts, which is, if you have to remind your colonies 4,000 miles away that you're really in charge, it's because you're probably not. Yeah, there's probably an issue here. Every parent can relate to that statement, exactly. Right. And because, I mean, again, this is far from a time of, you know, we're so jaded by instantaneous communication. So this is some weeks you know, between a reply arriving in London, the hemming and hawing of whatever ministers might do, and then it coming back. So talk to us a little bit about what that delay meant in action and reaction. The timeline comes into play, particularly when Bostonians begin to be really obstreperous and they start to harass customs officials. They, you know, start to destroy homes. They begin to be insolent toward even elected officials. And in Adams's case, for example, he sees that a gallery is built in the Massachusetts House so that, as he puts it, the people can look up to the people who elected them. They can look up to their constituents. And this is beyond the pale as far as the then royal governor is concerned. It's, it's actually Thomas Hutchinson's predecessor who thinks that Adams has now turned the House into theater. But he writes these sputtering letters back to London knowing that he's not going to get an answer for months. And that becomes a real issue because on the one hand, he's watching the tempers beginning to flare and the, and the fever rising, but he can't write and get an instantaneous bunch of troops who are going to help him quell this disorder. So there's a real balancing act that needs to be done, knowing that you're never going to get instant relief from London and also knowing that London isn't always paying attention. And so you, you see this mounting frustration on the parts of Hutchinson and Bernard precisely because they know that they're dealing with you'll get your answer next season. You won't have your answer next week. And to your point, it's a weird time warp. It's an actual time warp, I guess, right? Because what they're writing about is in stasis as it crosses the Atlantic, but reality is moving ever forward. They're caught 
in the sort of whirlpool of having to wait for a reaction while action in front of them is still taking place. Right. So, for example, you have duties that are taken off of the colonies, but that news crosses with the news of the Boston Massacre. So you almost have competing narratives because of the time lag. So as royal governor, as far as trying to control the colonists, what was Hutchison and his predecessor and successor, what were they actually legally able to do? They're essentially in charge of the House. They have a small governing council. And with that governing council, they can pass all kinds of local legislation. So he actually does have his hands on the levers of power. He obviously can't do anything like impose taxation, but he can decide if the Massachusetts House will be allowed to meet or not meet. He can veto a piece of legislation. Um, He can call meetings. He can make arrests. It is Hutchinson who, after the Boston Massacre, for example, quiets the town, assures them that justice will be served, and then organizes, helps to organize um, a court to hear the testimony of the soldiers and the people who had been on the streets that night. Right. And violence has been part of the idiom of some of this now. And as I recall, a, a fr- Egyptian friend of mine said after January 6th, you know, once violence enters politics, it's hard to get it back out again. I think we forget that troops arrive in Boston in 1768. I mean, they arrive very early. And Boston feels for many months then like an occupied town. And those are the months when I said Adams was sort of running his new syndicate. Those are the months when um, he's doing everything he can to drum up every possible form of resistance to these invaders, these alien invaders from London. But it will be months until the Boston Massacre. At first, it's a very slow build toward that kind of violence. Once lives have been lost in Boston, I do think that everyone is on high alert. But I also feel that the opposite is true. I think that there's a real sense after the trials in particular, when everyone just wants to forget about all of this disorder and go back to living their lives as normal. And you can see that Hutchinson, for example, is able to buy off a lot of Adams's associates during that time. Everyone just is exhausted from the months of opposition, from the non-importation efforts, from the confrontations in the streets. Justice has been served. Everyone really tries to sort of just go back to normal. And the one person who refuses to do so, of course, is Samuel Adams. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is one thing that I would say about another parallel between what we see in your book as far as this desperation for normalcy and what we see as a desperation for normalcy on the part of so many today, too, is that you don't get it back. Once the road has veered into another direction, it goes in that direction. There's no such thing in history as sort of getting back on the track of something, especially after blood has been shed or massive upheavals, you know, economically, socially, whatever the case might be. Maybe it's only a couple of degrees worth of difference, Stacey, but it's not the same direction. Yes, but I think, you know, I guess if you put yourself back into those years, I think there's a strangely wavering kind of stop and go quality to the revolutionary effort. I mean, we, we think of it as a revolutionary effort. Obviously, it doesn't begin that way. And so there are moments where it seems as if it's just come to a full stop. 
So if you look at the overall picture, yes, you can see that it's trending inevitably toward a separation between colonies and mother country. But there are any number of moments along that way where it seems as if some kind of parity is still possible. Right. There's a latency almost. There are things on the move, but you think things have returned, as I said, to this sort of old normal. You're in a new normal, but it doesn't feel like it yet. And so let's talk about old normal versus new normal. So let's talk about Samuel Adams, you know, famous midnight ride and, you know, John Hancock, who, you know, we we know for his famous signature, but he's a friend of Adams, wealthy friend of Adams. They go running and, you know, from the old legends, Paul Revere makes an appearance, right? So now as you get closer and closer to the actual revolution, now, you know, it becomes so much of what so many of us remember from school. This goes back to my point about how clueless or how unable London is to really grasp what's happening. The feeling really is for a long time that if Samuel Adams or Samuel Adams and John Hancock can be arrested, this resistance thing can be nipped in the bud. And those are the orders with which Thomas Gage's General Gage is sent to America. He's sent basically with orders to arrest Adams and Hancock. He thinks he'll do that when he first arrives. He puts it off. By the time he actually is told in no uncertain terms that it's time to do so, he realizes it's too late. And that if he does arrest Adams and Hancock, he will detonate a revolution. So it's a really interesting conundrum on his part because he's essentially being told by London that he must make these arrests. But he also knows on the ground, and this again speaks to the dislocation between the two countries, he knows on the ground that it's virtually impossible to do so or or he will do so at tremendous cost. So yes, for years there have been discussion of arresting Samuel Adams for sedition. Many of his articles have been sent back to London by Francis Bernard and Thomas Hutchinson. You know, are these is this sufficient proof for us? Is it sufficient for us to be able to make an arrest? The questions discussed in London at at least two or three junctures, and usually the answer had come back, no, it's not sufficient until Paul Revere heads off to warn the two of them that they are about to be arrested. Right. And like so many things we've seen throughout history, the inability or the unwillingness to make a decision often have more drastic effects than if you had just said, go get the guy in the middle of the night. You know, Gage hems, he haws, and then by the time he finally gets the gumption, it's too late. Absolutely. And in a funny way, you know, that's he's a victim of his own decency, General Gage. I mean, he's not a particularly aggressive man. He really doesn't want to have to do this. So in a funny way, he's he's a victim of his own kindness if you could call it that. But yes, he fumbles the ball at that juncture. And by then, you know, Adams and Hancock, their profiles are so high, their stock is so high that it would have been a tremendous misstep. Now, of course, in not arresting them, he also detonates a revolution, but for a different reason. And so I guess that goes back to the earlier point I was trying to make, which was even if the colonists didn't know it, then they had been put upon a road that was going to lead to this. Would you say, let me ask, is that fair? Is it fair to say that Gage making a decision or not making a decision or making it too late was immaterial? That's one way or the other, the, the water was going to find a way. You know, there's a serenity to Samuel Adams during these years, especially after 1768. And I think the serenity is in part because he senses precisely what you just said. He realizes that this is the way American affairs are trending. And it may take a little bit longer, it may take less long, but clearly this is where it's going. And it isn't clear what the thing that's going to ultimately detonate it is going to be. I mean, he felt very strongly that independence should have been declared the morning after Lexington and Concord. And in fact, he would hold to this idea that if it had been declared that morning, Canada would have thrown in with the American colonies and, we, and Canada would have been part of the United States. 
but he knows it's going in that direction. It's just a question of what events are going to have to take place before it gets there. Because as, as you know, a great deal of arm twisting in Congress with the New Englanders essentially having to hold themselves back and let the Virginians take over to convince the Middle Atlantic states that this was actually a good idea. That's not an easy thing for people to do. If they feel like I've been leading this charge, I've been the spearhead, I've been the pathfinder, and now I have to let somebody else take the ball, that's not always something people can do. In fact, it, oftentimes it's not. And I would say that we're speaking very much about the genius of Samuel Adams. There's a really interesting set of entries in John Adams's diary as he and as the Massachusetts delegation is making its way to the First Continental Congress. And they're essentially hearing along the way about how they are perceived by the other colonies. And the farther they get south, the more they hear about how they are basically perceived as goths and vandals and nobody wants to deal with them because they are such hot-headed fanatics. And you can see John kind of hearing that but not really believing it. But we know that Samuel took that very much to heart. It's not the kind of thing that somebody like John Hancock, who very much needed to be the center of attention and the driving force and the person who got all the plaudits, would have bought into. But it was very much the kind of behavior that Samuel Adams tended toward because he didn't necessarily like to be in the spotlight. He was very comfortable in the wings and he just wanted to get this deal done. So you can see him really working the situation from behind the scenes, which was essentially his native country was to be behind the scenes. And, you know, you think about it, even, you know, we contend with this today is working in coalition is an incredibly difficult, incredibly time consuming and incredibly energy intensive way to do something because you have to maintain your goal, right? Your ultimate objective while also understanding and convincing those with perhaps similar objectives, or maybe you can get to them to agree on that final goal. But how they're going to go about it, what they need to join you. Okay, you know, I agree on A, you agree on A plus 20. How do you get to A plus 10? And so talk to us a little bit about how Adams, was it Adams' prestige that was able to carry that off? To a certain extent, it's his prestige. I mean, remember that at this moment, he's so well known that other people in other colonies are referred to as the Samuel Adams of South Carolina, the Samuel Adams of Georgia, the Samuel Adams of Rhode Island. And that was usually the most hot-headed person, right? But he defies that image. I mean, I think the best example of what you're mentioning is at that first Congress, we're talking about a group of men here who barely speak the same language, right? They dress differently. They worship differently. They divide a dollar into a different number of shillings. They're completely out of sync with each other. So they come to this Congress and it's proposed by one of them that there be a prayer to open the assembly. And immediately someone else objects and says, how can we have a prayer? We are Baptists. We are Quakers. We are, you know, we are Anglicans. How can we possibly have a mutual prayer? And Adam stands up and makes a bid for ecumenicalism by suggesting essentially that there's this extremely good Anglican minister in Philadelphia and surely he could deliver the prayer. And the fact that this New England Puritan, this staunch Puritan known for his religious fiber, is willing to invite an Anglican into the assembly, wins the day. And it's seen to be this massively brilliant political maneuver on Adams's part because he's brought everyone onto the same page. So that's the kind of behavior I think it took to keep the coalition together. But I should also say that the Massachusetts coalition didn't always coalesce. So there was a lot of infighting as well. Well, and that's the thing, right? It's a uh to use a, a much more modern and probably too lowbrow reference, it's, uh, you know, don't talk about family business outside the family. 
which is if you want to argue, we argue in here. You don't yeah. you don't tell <laughs> exactly. other people what we got going on in here. And the person who did that was John Hancock, which is also part of your answer as to why Samuel Adams is forgotten. And that was because John Hancock often wrote back to and talked when back in Boston about his poisonous feelings for Samuel Adams, which also didn't help with Adams's reputation after the war. And was that was Hancock a peacock? I didn't think to write that. That's brilliant. Yes. He's unfortunately, I think he's always, he's depicted by one of their mutual colleagues as a, I'm quoting, a contemptible fool led about by the nose by Samuel Adams. He's not known to be a great luminary intellectually. He's got a massive fortune at his disposal, which is part of the reason that Adams will recruit him. But he's much more interested in finery and adoration. This is a man who never met a naming opportunity that he could resist than he is in any kind of real political ideas. So the Revolutionary War is a long slog. It is a long slog. But let's talk about the post-war years. So tell us, we've come through, you know, we're now this United States of America. We're under this wobbly Articles of Confederation. Where does Samuel Adams find himself now? Adams' shining moments are not the moments that follow the revolution. As someone will say of him early on, he really thrives on opposition. So he's in Congress for eight years. He's really there longer, really, than almost anyone else. He's older. I should probably have mentioned that. I mean, he's old enough to be Alexander Hamilton or James Madison's father, really. And he is not a man who really feels completely comfortable with what the Confederation of Colonies is going to amount to. He's not a Federalist. He's very much a New Englander at heart. And he's really in many ways, harking back to, as he puts it, the ancient purity of principles, the old world, as opposed to this very commercialized new world, this mercantile new world to which the colonies seem headed. He plays a much lesser role after the war. There's some hesitation on his part, even about signing the Constitution. Part of that is that he feels it's missing a Bill of Rights. He thinks it should include a clause outlawing the slave trade and also one ensuring freedom of the press. And he's very much kind of ill at ease with what the world around him is now amounting to. And you say this towards the end of the book, and I think this is for someone who's done so much research on him, and, but for him at that time, you said, quote, he had outlived himself. Which is why that last chapter is so short. <laughs> <laughs> the biographer never wants to see his subject at his, at his worst, right? He right. Really, I mean, part of the reason is he lives a very long time. He lives to be 81. And he's not in sterling health in these years, but he's also sidelined. And he's very briefly governor of Massachusetts. He never holds a federal office. He's not a particularly accomplished governor. He's, I think that's largely, a, you know, he gets the job as, as governor largely as thanks for his revolutionary years. But he doesn't play a significant role politically once the peace is signed. Well, and you write in that same passage, Quote, he had helped to erect the intellectual architecture of a republic, but had neither gift nor interest in its political design. You know, there's a really interesting correspondence between the two Adamses about essentially that, essentially the architecture of a republic. What does it take? I mean, it's very resonant today. What does it take for a democracy to stand up? And Adams's view, which was deeply idealistic and probably wholly impractical, was that essentially a democracy rested on two things morality and education. And if you could educate everyone, and if everyone had some kind of moral backbone, the rest would take care of itself. And John upbraids him and basically says, that's pie-eyed and ridiculous. You must have institutions. 
And, you know, there's a real sort of push and pull between the two of them. It's a 1790 correspondence, but it's quite fascinating. Well, because maybe in a town of 15 or 20,000 people, you might be able to pull that off. But in a far-flung 13 states, as we noted earlier, with people who basically speak different versions of English, have different clothing styles, different economies, you know, everything's different. The idea that somehow everybody will just act on their best behavior does seem pie-eyed. And I think even the founders understood that. I think it was probably, was it Madison or Monroe who understood that that's why you had to have these interlocking branches of government so that the institution was prime, not the individual. Right. And I think there, Adams's faith in a funny way gets in the way because he's so pious. He has his own structures. These are religious structures. And it, he doesn't realize that there are people who exist outside of those structures. Well, and as you know, Douglas MacArthur said in his valedictory before Congress, old soldiers never die, they fade away. And that might be the truth for old revolutionaries, too, is that there's very few who can make the transition from toppling, you know, a regime and then serving as its leader. We have examples, right? Plenty of them, but they rarely work out well. Right. It's a very different skill set. And, and you see that very much with Adams, even when he gets to Congress, that that is not playing to his strengths. It's sitting in an no, established government is not playing to his strengths. Exactly. Right. Whereas this building coalitions and this, you know, devising a vocabulary and this inciting people, that plays to, very much to his strengths. The revolutionaries who tend to stick around, and I'm thinking about in the 20th century aspect of this, are the ones who are never going to allow the revolution to end, right? That the conflict must be constant. Whereas in the United States, it was very clear, like, we have done this thing we must now do this other thing. We did that. It didn't work. Now we have to do this better thing. We want the fighting to be over. We want to get to the business of being Americans. And you get that sense. There's a fabulous letter from Thomas Jefferson, which is the letter that closes the book, where he's writing to Adams, and the two of them agree. There's a correspondence between the two. They agree that they have survived a terrible storm and that they are now in port. And you can just feel that sort of note of finality with Adams, that he believes they have arrived and his work here is done. And, you know, that's pretty self-aware. I mean, that is a pretty self-aware thing for these people for whom they're legends. These are not people who even 250 years on, they, you know, their faces are on mountains, right? Or on beer bottles, as the case might be. <laughs> I'm not even sure that's really Samuel Adams on the beer bottle, but yes, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Stacey, this has been incredibly entertaining for me. And thank you so much. Tell us where we can find you online, where we can find your work online, and what else you're working on. Thank you, Rita. This was a perfect delight. I am on Twitter under Stacey Schiff, and that's pretty much the only place you'll find me online. Although if you want to reach me, you can reach me through my website, which is stacyschiff.com. And I do answer every single email. And is there anything else interesting you're working on now? My previous book had been about the Salem witch trials. And because there had been a couple of plays mounted last year, which were responses to Arthur Miller and The Crucible. I'm working on this kind of 12-legged piece, which is about Salem and McCarthyism and Miller and these new plays and how women are now reading The Crucible differently from the way we might have read it in Arthur Miller's day. It's for the New York Review of Books. Well, we look forward to reading that. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok at Reed Galen and on Instagram and threads at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Stacey Schiff, thank you so much for joining me. And everybody else, we'll see you next time. 
thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode.